Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. I think there is a sense of normalisation. And so if I do nothing wrong, I've got nothing to hide. Um, That's not really the point. The point is actually that as more and more information about you is collected, you're exposed to hacks and there are smarter people than us trying to work out ways of both break into systems and exploit them. Hi, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent, and I'm joined by the Executive Director of Essential, Peter Lewis, and we are discussing the latest results of the Guardian Essential poll. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Paul. Uh, We're here in the pod cave together for a polling episode of the Australian Politics Podcast. Uh, We've had our fortnightly essential results and we've asked punters about The Voice, uh, the leaders' popularity and privacy reform as well. Um, Maybe we could start by discussing The Voice. Are people still in favour of constitutionally entrenching an Indigenous voice to Parliament and the Executive? Well, most are, which is if you believe we should be moving forward as a nation, probably good news. Um, I've always been someone that hates horse race polling with political parties, but I do think regularly tracking people's voting intention lead up to the referendum is useful. And so we are doing it monthly. And of course, over the last fortnight, we saw Peter Dutton intervene in the debate and finally stop teasing that there might be any semblance of bipartisanship in this vote and just went, no. Um, So we did want to see how that had landed. Look, So he made the announcement just as we were going in the field, I think sort of a couple of days before. There hasn't been a major shift. We'd been seeing over the previous month a drop in support, particularly amongst progressive voters, down from 65 to 59 support, 41 opposition. It stabilised, but only margin of error, 60-40 was our finding this week. Interestingly, there was a slight strengthening in the support amongst Green voters. Labor was down a tad. Lib was down a tad. Um, I think it's too early to call what the impact of a quite unpopular opposition leader making himself the cheerleader for the No campaign will be, although we do have history to see that unpopular opposition leaders can win elections. Um, but... It does strike me that it will play a really galvanising role on the progressive side. So we've been having progressive voters. Labor's high 70s, Greens were high 80s, dropping to high 70s. 
in their support. Every one of those votes is as vital as a swing voter and part of the theory of building the um, the national consensus required to deliver a yes, which as listeners will no doubt know by now is not just a national majority, but a majority in a majority of the states. So three all-in states is a loss, not a win. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really probably, two-thirds. It really is two-thirds, right? And the fact that ACT and NT doesn't count, which is kind of, thank you, constitutional founding fathers for that one. Yeah, you get two uh, votes if you're in the States and you get one vote if you're in the ACT or NT, effectively. Yeah, constitutional reform is very, very hard, Paul. Um, I think there was an t- attempt to fix that at one stage and that was one of many that went down even with bipartisan support back in the annals. But anyway, I do think that um, Dutton presents as your classic villain for those that w- look at people playing politics with this issue, um, getting angry about the issue, which is almost counter to what the Uluru Statement of the Heart is all about. It's not about anger. It's about an invitation that people are being asked to accept. And I I just think almost if you wanted to personify the white guy that thinks he can fix every problem rather than listening to what people with less power are asking for, then you've probably picked a pretty good motif for for the um, the no case. Well, we'll get on to leaders' popularity in a, in a minute, but just sticking with the voice for now, I, the thing that jumped out at me was that although it's still a 60-40 uh, in favour of the voice, there has been a, a shift from the soft nose are down three points and the hard nose are up three points. So what does that suggest to you in terms of um, whether undecided people are tuning into the debate or whether it's reaching the same audience for, for negative messaging? Yeah, I, and that's gone up from 21% at the beginning of the year. And likewise, um, hard yes has gone down from 38 to 32 So one of the things we've been doing as well as asking how you're going to vote is also been asking the strength of the vote. So unlike other polls, we're not letting people say we don't know, but once they've given their answer, we're asking how hard or soft they are. At the moment, you've got 32% hard yes, 26% hard no, with 27% soft yes and 14% soft no. Now, what's actually interesting, if you interrogate the soft yes and the soft no, and you say, well, what's driving your softness? It's much more the proposition that this will not deliver meaningful change rather than it's creating special rights for one group. And I think the tension in those two messages is going to be really interesting as well, because again, if you can prove real change, you're really solidifying your progressive base, whereas the sort of mediating down against the, oh no, it's not really a special case is really talking to a smaller group who are unsure. So all putting all that together, I think it offers the yes case a really good opportunity to reload and relaunch with a common obvious villain and a really beautiful source document, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which kind of lays out the pathway. And so part of, I think, the theory of change is just to give people the time to engage with the invitation that's come from First Nations people rather than trying to get too deeply in the weeds and think that every single individual needs to solve the whole problem themselves as if we're all amateur constitutional lawyers. 
It'll also be interesting to see. I mean, I think the poll was in the field just as uh, Julie and Lisa was resigning from the front bench. I think it'll be interesting, you know, he's spending the next six weeks arguing for slight changes to the wording um, of the constitutional alteration bill. But after that inquiry is done, you know, he and the other uh, Liberals that are in favour of yes are also going to be trying to create space for coalition voters. You know, it's okay. There's a Liberals for Yes group. You shouldn't be dictated by party politics in terms of what you do in the referendum. It'll be interesting to see whether there's any uh, increase in Liberals that support the voice. It's a really interesting expression of liberalism, really, and probably that strain of that party that's in decline and a really stark counterpoint to the notion of hard no. And hard no is not just no to the referendum, it's hard no to the generous invitation to walk forward with First Nations people, which is a massive call. And so politicians of good heart from across the political divide are accepting that invitation but also critically calling on broader communities to organise themselves and take the time to understand the nature of that invitation, which isn't just about a vote, it's a journey. You know, it is voice, treaty, truth, and the truth at the heart of our nation is something that we have not confronted. Now, you've, you've mentioned uh, Dutton as the villain of the campaign a couple of times now, so we better, we better get to the hard numbers that prove uh, whether or not he's a popular man. So uh, what, what did you find in terms of uh, the opposition leader's approval rating? And he's not a popular man. I don't think he's ever been a popular man. He's, um, we haven't asked his approval as opposition leader to date. We've been doing a favourability rating, which hasn't been flash either. In terms of the job he's doing as opposition leader, he comes out at 36 approve, 44 disapprove, 20 don't know, which is a net negative of eight. In contrast, Anthony Albanese currently is at net positive of 15. Um, you could say the honeymoon's kind of dropped off the sort of 60% plus approval rating, but it's still 51, disapprove at 36. Again, this is the bit that I don't quite get with Dutton. So he is going into a one-on-one fight really with a guy who's for a prime minister at a pretty good level of popularity. And he's also, he's not just rejecting the invitation from the Uluru statement, he's also rejecting Albanese's invitation to basically be a good guy and walk forward on this constitutional journey over the next six months, which if you'd think anything would have softened those negatives, it might have been that. But for a number of reasons, of which I'm sure only he can articulate, he's um, chosen not to go down that road. Yeah, and you think softening his image would be worth more to him because by the time of the next election, the referendum will be a year or more than a year in the rear vision mirror by then. And, you know, so uh, the evaluation of of character would be be far more important than the actual results in terms of how people vote. Yeah, I do joke in my um, column this week, you wonder where the Liberal Party hardheads are, but actually they're all working on the Yes campaign, both Mark Texter, who was the architect of... Brexit and turn back the votes, but also Tony Nutt, who shepherded the Howard government through a number of successful elections, are actually on the oversight (laughs) committee for yes. So um, the hardheads are not in control of the Liberal Party at the moment. I can only assume that the the strategy is about trying to galvanise the base and and show 
the people who already show up that you're fighting for something. You know, it seems to be more about manning booths uh, on election day, you know, and people that hand out how to vote cards than it does about the, the people walking into the, the polling places and, and how they vote, which is although, a, a I, bit I of a worry. See, although I can't see Josh Frydenberg sitting back and going, gee, this is going to create a bit of a momentum to win back Kuyong. And, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, Tim Wilson's out there probably wondering if the winds are going to change. It's not going to change their direction, is it? No, Su- Susan Lee did a a pre-budget blitz of 16 seats and a lot of them were the inner city seats that they lost, particularly to the Teals uh, and a few to Labor. And uh, I'm sure the um, cost of living messaging goes down a lot better there than the campaign against The Voice, uh, which is why I think that's such an interesting strategy to try try and do both at the same time, whereas I think it's taking some focus off cost of living to be going so negative on Mm. voice. Uh, You did ask about people's impression of the two major parties this week. What did you find? Was it just uh, the leaders that there was a gap between the parties on or did the brands have a different value? There's a bit of a difference, although we were talking about this before we started recording, Paul, and in a couple of these, which are kind of, we, we call them attributes. So we say, which thinking about Labor and Liberal, um, which of the following describes your opinion of them? And then generally trying to make Australia a better place to live. 60 Labor, 52 Liberals. So there's general sense politics is in there for good purpose. I suppose that's good for democracy. Then you get out of touch with ordinary people. And again, 65% say the Libs are out of touch, but 55 for Labor, which speaks probably to cost of living. We've been picking up particularly around approvals of anything to do with both Labor and the Prime Minister. If you are a lower income earner who is struggling, you're starting to lose a bit of the love. Um, Trustworthy, Labor up 44 to 39. Uncaring, Libs win that. <laughs> if that's a prize, 49 40. Um, understanding the issues facing women is probably the biggest gap 52 Labor, 39 coalition. Be interested to see what that is across gender. I'll just do a quick, but I suspect that. Um, <sighs> The Liberals do. There, there is a significant gender gap still in voting intention that we're picking up, which was really stark under Morrison but hasn't been fixed under Dutton. Yeah, I, I thought the um, uh, out of touch with ordinary people was an interesting result because, I mean, you found in an earlier essential poll that there was just you know, wild popularity for government intervention and any, anything to get involved uh, in the cost of living and ease the squeeze, as we said at the time. Uh, and sort of the thesis that we've had, you know, through Labor winning the Aston by-election is that the cost of living crisis isn't really hitting them yet. But I think what we can see uh, in these results that, you know, 55% of people said Labor was out of touch and then even even more, 65% said the Liberals were out of touch. Uh, it's not necessarily that people think the government is doing an amazing job on the cost Mm. of living. It's just that the alternative doesn't have any solutions. And in fact, you know, when it comes to the energy price package that went through in December, voted against uh, Labor's solutions. Mm. So I think there'll definitely be people looking to the budget for even more uh, help from the government. Yeah, and it maybe is where we circle back a little bit on our voice discussion, because if you are struggling financially and you're seeing a very loud debate by both sides on a really important issue that doesn't necessarily connect to your day-to-day financial pressures, is that going to reinforce the sense that the political system is out of touch? And so maybe putting that anger and oxygen into the room as the Libs and the Nats seem hell-bent on doing actually makes it harder for the government to 
keep the faith that government is delivering on a number of different issues. You know, a perfect scenario is probably that the anger and the energy is taken out. There's an education campaign. People go, oh, yes, I feel okay about moving forward um, with recognition and um, a voice to parliament. But that's not what we're going to get. It's going to be noisy and that may detract from the effort to reassure people that other issues are being dealt with. Hmm. Are there any other uh, lessons for the Liberal Party from these results? I mean, 60% said that they were disorganised. 39% said that they uh, understood the issues facing women. There is nothing here where a majority of people rate them on a positive apart from that 52 on trying to make Australia a better place to live. On everything else, they are failing to reach a majority on the positives or excelling um, the 50% mark on the negatives. I think, you know, first term opposition is really, really hard. Um, I was thinking back to the last first term opposition, and if you, it's interesting, and it, it goes back a little way, but if you remember when Labor lost in 2013, they actually had this period where they had a very, very civilised leadership contest between Shorten and Albanese that was sort of regarded by some as a little bit wet and sort of gloves on rather than gloves off, but it allowed that time to have a debate and a discussion about where the election had gone wrong um, or where the gov- previous government had gone wrong. And it was, all, I think it went for about three months, but it was just this calming process. And there were a few debates, there were member ballots, there was, I think if you remember also the um, caucus got to vote, but it just gave a pause. And I feel like it feels like it's still the Morrison government styles, but in opposition now. And there hasn't been a change. And politics is all about change as circumstances change, but also the political environment changes as well. I remember that. Uh, in, in in retrospect, it wasn't quite as idyllic a pause as, as you're making out of I mean, people the membership roles at the time and uh, the people that Anthony Albanese expected to vote for him that voted for Bill that now find themselves on the outer. It's, it's, there were some very we, polite we, debates on Sky TV, though. Maybe still water on, on the surface but not below the surface on that one. But you're, you're certainly right that there wasn't any uh, sort of period of reflection about the direction of the Liberal Party after the 2022 election. It was just all in on Dutton. And today, uh, Karen Andrews, who was one of the few people that was considering putting her hand up at the time for the leadership and that might have uh, provided an alternative to to Peter Dutton, has resigned from the front bench. Mm. So there's... uh, there are fewer options for, for alternatives, I guess. Labor people write books. <laughs> Labor, <laughs> Labor people uh, grind axes as yeah. well. <laughs> um, that finding about genuinely wanting to do the right thing by the country I thought was interesting mm. because uh, there was similarly almost a 50-50 split on whether Dutton and the Liberals were just playing yeah. politics on The Voice or whether they had genuine yeah. concerns. So yeah, that surprised I, me. And I'm beginning interested to see how that runs over a period of time um, because there's normally a cynicism around the motivations of, you know, even the most civic-minded politicians. But um, it's a really significant call that is going to obviously raise his profile in the national debate in a way that he hasn't had and whether that um, sense at least from 
a large minority that he is genuine about this will be really important for him to hold on to. Mm. It's like a what you see is what you get thing with him where a majority of people don't like what they see, but they think he is the genuine article of that, whereas Morrison sort of had had the other problem of people thinking it was a, a confection, the whole yeah, thing was a facade. Um, and, and look, to be fair, what... I don't think this is, I don't want to be fair, actually. I think what he's doing (laughs) is trying to tell people you can have all these things that are being asked for. You just don't have to give up any change in the constitution, which kind of misses the whole point of the Uluru Statement from the heart. And so um, maybe he'll go on fooling people that this is high-minded for a little bit longer, but the longer that he is the central owner of every libertarian whack job, um, the harder he is going to find to maintain that position, I reckon. And you also asked some questions this week about uh, the right to privacy and policy changes that might improve that. Did people feel that the right to privacy was well protected at the moment? Short answer, no. Um, The context of this, Paul, is that the Attorney-General's well down the road of a process that will see the most significant privacy laws we've seen for 40 years. There really hasn't been major change since the internet was a thing. A lot of this is directed at the way data is used and probably talks to some of those data breaches we saw last year. 53% say they don't think their right to privacy is adequately protected in law. Only 25% are comfortable with where things are. On specific issues that are subject to that review, which is working its way through the system, raising the level of responsibility for orgs that hold your personal information, um, 70% plus support, allowing individuals to take legal action against organisations that fail to protect their personal information, 70% support, placing controls on the use of facial recognition, which is rolling out really, really quickly, 60% support, and broadening the definition of personal information to include your online behaviour, so the profiles that are built with you, again, 60% support. So there's strong support for it. The question is going to be in a busy and crowded political environment with a lot of noise, whether those reforms do move forward. Um, You wrote a piece on the weekend that there's aspects of it that media companies are opposing. It's not the whole package. And the history of this is that it's been really hard to get this moving with organised opposition. So it's it's, it's a process that's going out. But you know, there is a sense from the public that the time has come for some sort of movement on privacy. And, and we should declare that the uh, Right to Know Coalition, which made a submission arguing against the uh, right to sue for breaches of privacy applying to media companies, that includes Guardian Australia. So we should we should put in a... And I should probably disclose I also at Moonlight with the Centre for Responsible Technology. So we're probably... Um, these are interesting debates and important debates to have. Let's just put it that way. Maybe we'll have to poll whether uh, people think that media companies should be exempted from that because at the moment uh, the right to sue for breaches of privacy is wildly popular at 70%, oh, look, so we might I, need to drill down more and look, detail. I don't think anyone would want to see um, freedom of speech or journalism impinged by these laws. I think the point that I would make is that th- these reforms are much bigger. It's not media is not the target of these. It's the industries that build um, business models based on the collection and repurposing and exploitation of our personal information that are the targets, and that's not the Guardian. Mm. And we and we wouldn't be surprised if um, 
Mark Dreyfus didn't make the elements of the package that were taking on the media the top priority because that can um, be adverse for your There are also exemptions in the Act at the moment around political parties and they can collect a lot more data than any other organisation. Now, you'd have to be believing in Santa Claus to see that moving, even though there's probably strong policy grounds for it happening. Mm. Um, Now, I spotted that which political party you backed didn't really have a lot of bearing on what you thought of privacy, Uh, but the thing that really jumped out at me was respondents' age tells you a lot about uh, about how you feel about privacy. Yeah. And it's, as you'd expect, uh, younger people are less concerned. What did you find in terms of age disparity? Yeah, there are big shifts on age. Older people are more wary. And we should have said, if people want to have a look at these charts at home, essentialreport.com.au, but yeah, 41.38, if you're under 35, you think everything's okay with privacy. 66.11, if you're over 55 like me, maybe I'm just a sign of my age getting exercised about this. But I think there are genuine and important issues that are not are being allowed to sort of fester because there are no guardrails in place and particularly the really important work being done to try to regulate facial recognition technology before that gets out of control because, you know, we've seen how that's used in other parts of the world. Mm, and I was yeah I was surprised that less than half of people aged 18 to 34, uh, so it was 48%, supported controls on facial recognition, which I, I consider one of the more invasive things that can be done. Maybe yeah, yeah. maybe too much time in front of the Woolworths self-checkout and, and starting to get used to it or I, I don't know I th- what. I think there is a sense of normalisation and so if I do nothing wrong, I've got nothing to hide. Um that's not really the point. The point is actually that as more and more information about you is collected, you're exposed to hacks. And I think there are smarter people than us trying to work out ways of both break into systems and exploit them. Well, we hope that if people aren't worried about privacy, that they'll keep answering phone calls and uh, web surveys, giving us information uh, about what they think about various issues. De-identified only, Paul. De-identified only. You'll presumably be in the field uh, in the next few weeks in the lead up to the budget in terms of what people want or need to see out of the budget. What do you think you're going to find out? Well, we always set up expectations for budget and also then responses afterwards. So that's where you're going to look after the next couple of cycles. Obviously, we're also coming up to the first anniversary of the Albanese government. Um, The numbers are still holding up for the government. We're not putting out the two-party preferred at the moment, but if we were, we'd be putting out numbers which the government would be pretty relaxed about. Um, But it's very early in the cycle. Oh, go on, the little Easter egg at the end of the pod. Maybe maybe next week. Maybe what we'll do after the, for the first year, I will open the kimono on that, Paul. Oh, lovely. There you go. That's that's what people want to hear. The 2PP plus is back. (laughs) Double plus. All right, we might leave you with that cliffhanger and you'll have to you have to tune in next fortnight to hear more about that. But um, thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Absolute pleasure, Paul. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.